Ladies and gentlemen, this is a show by veterans for soldiers, veterans, and anyone else who wants to listen. However, we are going to speak like soldiers, and our language may not necessarily be either politically correct or, in some cases, at all nice. Sorry, Mom. Trench Monkeys RPG Podcast, sound off. This is Eric. This is Kyle. And this is Greg. This episode, we're going to have a mail call from Scott W. and Jim. Jim. Earthworm Jim. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know what W stands for, but uh, we can figure it out. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Jim. Jim. In work call, we're going to discuss the longest games that we've done, played, whatever, mostly looking for game mastering tips and maybe some advice on, you know, how to run a long-term game in your experience. And then also, as as with all of our episodes, our TAP segment will include final thoughts and contact information on how to reach us, send us mail call, things like that. Let's start off with mail call. First letter or first email we've got is from Scott W. And Scott says, it's great to see others on active duty or veterans status discussing gaming. I'm putting together a discussion panel with LEOs and military to chat about guns versus gamers, the reality versus what everyone thinks happens. I would like to hear what your thoughts are on what we face in a firefight versus, well, you know. The first thing I took from that question is you're talking about realism versus cinematic action. There is a place for both. I, in my personal feelings, is that military guys have a tendency to, in their games, prefer reality. In their movies and uh, video games, a lot of times it's they would prefer not reality, the cinematic. That's not an overarching, you know, that's just my impression. What what do you you guys think about that? I think there's a time and place for each of them. The biggest annoyance i have as a leo as a law enforcement military law enforcement officer is tasers i am so sick and tired of tvs and movies somebody gets shot with a taser and wakes up later you don't wake up it just hurts like a son of a bitch and you can't move and you can't move five seconds and And that's that's it it. it's five seconds then you get right back up and they tase you again i've been tased tranquilizer oh right so when you're seeing these like this guy got tased four times it's not because he's on pcp it's just because they tased him and then five seconds went by and he started to get up again yeah having been a taser instructor Five seconds is long enough to cover the maximum 35 feet those darts are going to travel and at least get your hand on somebody. Part of the problem, speaking as someone who trains law enforcement and having been a law enforcement officer in both the civilian and military world is, it's a training problem. You shoot somebody with a taser, you flick the wire so you don't step on and zap yourself, and you walk up and get a hand on the guy. Now, you tell him, don't move, I'm going to put the cuffs on you. If he starts to move, yeah, you maybe give him one more so you can get the cuffs on him without him fighting you. But that should probably be about it. Now, if somebody's in a psychotic break, they're on some major drugs, taser's not going to work. So you got to go a little more heavy handed. But I see where you're coming from. And I that's one of my pet peeves with some of that, too. Another issue I have playing, especially very violent RPGs like Dark Heroes, stuff like that. Guns. You're taking enemy fire and you're hiding behind a desk right. and they're shooting automatic weapons. And it's a game. You just keep shooting back until one or the other is dead. It doesn't work that way. You mm-hmm. you will find cover. You won't be jumping up to shoot when they're still unloading bullets. 
it is at some times frustrating as a GM when you've developed these scenarios and they're playing the game instead of understanding what's going on. But at the same point in time, okay, I'm perfectly fine with like Halo flying through the air, throwing grenades at walls. So they bounce back at people chasing you because you know there's somebody chasing. You. I'm fine with that too. I mean, I guess it's just a, a preference in whether or not I'm playing or whether or not I'm running. And it depends on the game you're playing, too. That's true. Yeah, I mean, if you're playing a game that, like Feng Shui or one of these other games that's, you know, supposed to be cinematic, the new 7th C, mm -hmm. you know, the rule set for that is basically you're you're supposed to succeed. So you're supposed to do these things. You're assigning dice to make it cooler. If the game itself is geared towards that cinematic quick feel, I, I don't have a problem with it either. But, man, it, it, it there's something kind of satisfying about having a game that is so granular that a 357 is going to be different than a 38. In some games, you're going to get the same amount of dice damage, at, you know, and things like that. It is satisfying to have a game that really understands that. I, I got to say this about Steve Long. Steve Long was an attorney. And so when he wrote a combat system, he didn't say, well, the Walther PPK does this and the Brennan M9 does that. No, he says a 9mm does this and a 45 does this and a 357 does this and he assigned damage codes to weapon caliber. If you're playing a game in the 1940s, you pop up IMFDB or you pop up, you know, a historical database and you say, all right, well, these are the guns that were available. They're in these calibers. All right. So now I know what my damage codes are going to be. Hero System is beautiful for doing firefights, running a game where you're going to be running and gunning and shooting at people because they also have all the skills for that. Now, to play a character that can run and gun and have all those skills, I mean, you're talking a 200-point normal which is high to play a army ranger or a SWAT cop with some time on the force. You know, you're talking a high point, fairly experienced, normal person. And one of the things that drives me the most nuts about games is, in fact, this is just a case in point. It's nothing against this game or this company in particular. The End of the World by Fantasy Flight Games. They just list it as, oh, this is a shotgun. Oh, this is a hunting rifle. Oh, this is an assault rifle. I hate the term assault rifle, but anyway. Listen, a hunting rifle often uses the same bullet as an assault rifle. So in their game, a Ruger Mini-14, which is classified as a hunting weapon to them, does a different damage than an AR-15. It's the same damn bullet. So I like some realism, unless I'm playing a truly fantasy game or Star Wars, you know, something so sci-fi that there's no bullets in it. You know, then I'll get more cinematic. I've talked about Dark Heresy uh, in a previous episode, talking about laser rifles and bolt guns and things plasma like that. Plasma pistols. Plasma, mm. plasma pistols, melta guns. Then you get cinematic, then you get a little crazy. But I still prefer my characters to take real cover. I had a guy who'd never played with me before get very upset with me because he flipped the table over and started to return fire. Well, I'm sorry, an AK-47 is going through that flimsy little diner table you just flipped over, dude. That's concealment, not cover. So let me, let me give you a minute to teach you what concealment and cover are, which your character would know. And if you want to revise your action, you may. You know, he was butt hurt for a few minutes and realized, okay, I got it. You know, I'm, I'm not going to flip the table over. I'm going to dive out the window. Perfect. That Vinyl a, does not stop bullets. But a brick wall between you mm -hmm. and them will. It depends on the game I'm playing. I do tend to prefer more realism in a game. And sometimes, you know, you have to educate a player that doesn't have the experience. You've got right. to tell them, you know, hey, listen, man, you're playing a guy who is in the military or is in the military right now. He's going to know that just flipping that table over isn't going to do him any good. I know I'm bogging the game down right now, but if you flip that table over and be able to shoot through it, you're going to take less damage, but you're still going to take damage. You know, you've got all these other options right now that you can do. What do you want to do? 
you know, it makes sense. And if they say, no, I'm going to flip the table over, then you just roll with it. That being said, more so than just weapons, that's one of the aspects I like about certain games too. Realism is nice, but at the same point in time, I don't have a clue what an underwater explosives expert does. So if I'm going to make an underwater explosives expert and these are the knowledges I need, these are the skills I need, I might need help make a underwater demolitions roll to know what you're doing. Because I personally don't, and I've had to deal with DMs that, well, if you don't know, then you don't know. How would I know what a nuclear physicist does? I'm playing a character here. I'm playing a starship captain. I've never been in space. How about a little bit of understanding? So I'm not an astronaut, motherfucker. Realism in situations is good, but at the same point in time... You to me, I've always disbelief. been. I've always been right. a real fan of the story, yeah. and if the story is good enough, you might succeed. Whereas your dice roll might not necessarily have succeeded. And as a GM, you've got to be willing to kind of hand wave some stuff that a player's character may know, but the player doesn't know. Or you might have to rein in something that the player knows, but the player character would have no idea about. You know, you got to break the meta game down sometimes. And as a GM, I'm fairly forgiving unless you do something dumb. I've had a shadow run go off with one shot fired because their plan was good. They made their rolls. I flubbed two or three of them, and I see it as realistic. All right, well, you know, you guys got through. That sensor was out because I rolled all ones on the roll. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and it just, the pl- their plan rolled with it. Now, that does affect future games. If you don't think Ares Macrotech isn't going to look into how their facility yeah, How did this taken, happen? Wait a minute. We had a faulty sensor. Wait a minute. There's the sensor tech on this fucking job? <laughs> there are only yeah. so many times I can shoot gas arrows around corners with a bow before they start throwing gas at us. Yeah. You know, realism has its place, and so does cinematic fighting. I prefer realism, and I notice as a GM, if I've got somebody who has never maybe fired a gun, doesn't know a lot about guns, I've trained people to shoot, it's no problem for me to say, all right, well, you know, here's here's stuff your character would know that maybe you don't. I'll help you close that knowledge gap, and we'll do this right. And most people are, are happy about that because a lot of time it works in their favor. Right. Or, and they're learning something yeah. that they didn't know before. Yeah. Going back to your underwater demolitions, hydrostatic shock is fucking awesome. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and the, the third edition Shadowrun rules for hydrostatic shock were damned amazing. <laughs> yep. We did a Shadowrun one time, and uh, I was actually playing at this point. It was, we were trying to retrieve this prisoner. It was a prisoner transfer, and we were hired to break the prisoner out of the transport, and they were transporting him through mini-sub. And so we thought, well, let's just rig this, you know, rig the, uh, the engine of the, of the mini-sub to blow. And the person who did it, who had the demo, messed up the messed it up or whatever and then decided to use way too much charge and so then when it went off and we were like standing at you know with the van backed up to the to the dock waiting for it and we saw but boom and then you know we saw chunks of the of the of the prisoner like floating we're like all right let's get the fuck out of here <laughs> this <laughs> never happened there was because he was because he was a, he was like a mob boss that was being transported and we had to get him out so we're like well we just screwed the mob so let's get out of here <laughs> That is one thing I must admit I really love about Shadowrun. As far as realism and stuff, between Shadowrun and Cyberpunk, they get so detailed with the tech. I love Cyberpunk in general, from Neuromancer on, and games like Shadowrun and Cyberpunk. While it has realism with me as far as weapons and stuff like that, it is such a beautiful story. From gritty, nasty, sleeping in the streets to high-rise, giant demonic, I want my room service. I really enjoy that one, and I completely suspend all disbelief. If you want to run on the ceiling, run on the ceiling. I will allow it because in my mind it looks awesome. 
Uh, second email is from Jim. Jim says, good day to all. Veteran here, four years active duty, Army, seven years reserve, 20 as an EMT paramedic firefighter. Uh, how critical do you think veterans need to be with playing a military-based game? Critical meaning criticizing. Yeah. Uh, first edition, Age of Rebellion, Godlike, World War II Supers game, uh, or mercenary-based game. What is too critical, and how can you go about teaching non-veterans? Personally, I don't like to get too technical about it because I, I only have movies to go off of for World War II games. I've never yeah. been part of a mercenary company. And I know it seems like kind of a cop out, but I, I don't I don't necessarily know. And we don't really play that many like current age military games because, well, it felt too much like work. Right. Yeah. Right. And so we t we've tended to avoid them. The biggest gaming experiences I've had have been since I met Greg. Mm -hmm. Before then, it was pretty much just D&D. So the biggest, widest view of games I have all come since I've met him. So I try not to get too technical with it. Yes, I might have to rein in a group that is playing a bunch of uh, military personnel and are coming up with just dumb shit that will never be actually allowed for them to do. But I prefer not to get too real because to me, it's, it's just it's the story. And the story is what is important. And if they want to be complete idiots, be complete idiots. I don't know. Kind of the way I look at it, we're playing a World War II game. I'm looking at, am I trying to be historically accurate? Is this alternate timeline? I, I look at the game, and I look at my group playing. In my normal game group, I've got two military brats, a military spouse, and two army guys. And so everybody kind of understands the military to some extent. Sure. Everybody's got an idea. So I, I evaluate by the group. And I evaluate the game we're playing. If we're going to play Gear Krieg, alternate timeline World War II. With you know, mechs. With mechs. Right. You know, with diesel-powered mechs. By the way, if you've never played Gear Krieg, I suggest you go to your next convention to the out-of-print books and find it, because that's about the only way to yeah, find it. And it's not on drive-thru RPG. And, uh, and trust me, I've looked. I've only been able to find books for at Gen Con. Well, remind me next time. I'll go look because I was staring at the out-of-print book section for a while this last time at Gen Con. I've got like two copies of most of them at this point. There's one book I need, but it's apparently a generic system book that everybody needs. Ah. So I'm getting there. Look at your group. Now, if you've got a, if you're the only military guy in your group, it might, if you, and you want to run a more military game, it's going to take some hand holding. It's going to take some bringing up or it's going to take you kind of suspending your disbelief and going, you know what? Let's be cinematic here and let's, let's roll this. And I'm going to slowly introduce my realism so that people kind of see how it's supposed to go and bring everybody in that way. I mean, at this point, either I or Kyle have been running games for, for my group for a while now. So they've all kind of got a pretty good idea of how reality will smack you in the face. My stormtroopers will be dangerous. Right. Here's the thing. When you're playing Star Wars, yeah, you can use a stormtrooper rule that when you hit one, they go down. Or you can be a little more realistic and realize that you're not Luke fucking Skywalker or Han fucking Solo. If, you, if you were, then they would have sent your characters to go destroy the Death Star. Precisely. Yes. <laughs> so stormtroopers have armor for a damn reason. I'm not going to get into Kyle's excellent argument about why they missed every shot. I appreciate it. No problem. I get tired of defending my point of view. And I, I somewhat agree. <laughs> Sounds with like you. we need to have a topic on this. One. Yeah, <laughs> it, you know, we might. So, Jim, 
look at your group. If you got another couple of vets in the group and you can handhold the rest of them and kind of bring them up to everybody else's level of play, do a little education along the way, do it, man. But if you're the only guy in the group, sometimes you, and I've, I've been this guy, you come off as an asshole trying to get everybody to be real when they just want to play and yeah. have a good time. Don't, don't make me play your way. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can slowly inject realism here and there. You can talk to them about, hey, you know, I was thinking about doing it this way because it seems more right to me or it seems a little more real in my game. And somebody might say, well, I'm playing an elf with a mono sword and two cyber arms. What are you talking about real? Mm-hmm. You know, it really does depend on what you're playing. Alternate timelines, things like that. Historical games, you just make sure you're using the right weapons for the timeline and nobody wants to pull a M60 out in the middle of uh, the Somme or some shit and you should be okay. Right. I'm of the opinion that, uh, like you said, know your group and know your game. But sometimes it's just better off. If you really want to run this game, then run it. But if the story you have, the idea you have or whatever would be better served with a different game that's maybe not as militaristic, then maybe if you're running for civilians, it's probably better to do that. I mean, play play the game you want to play, but I can see where it would be frustrating when you're trying to run a, a game or you're trying to bring people up to speed when it comes to a military-type game. And people like the idea of playing a military game, but they don't like it in practical application because, number one, people don't like to take orders. They don't like to give up their autonomy to another player character. And when you're talking about a rank structure, you are, by definition, supposed to listen to the person and you're sitting there going, yeah, but that's Tom and i known him since he was picking his boogers, right? You know, and, and eating them. So I'm not going to listen to Tom tell me to go and take this hill because Tom's a fucking moron. To remove yourself from that situation is probably the best thing to do because because people don't like to take that kind of, of rank. Even even people who've been in the military, everybody wants to be the Maverick, right? Everybody wants to be Wolverine. Nobody wants to be Cyclops or one of the other X-Men who follow the rules. Everybody wants to be Wolverine because Wolverine's a badass. Well, yeah, he's a badass because he's a loner. You know, you can't have a group of five loners and do anything productive. One way, Jim, that might be a way around this for you. First of all, in a military game, I always do an NPC commander, NPC first sergeant. That way there's always somebody that can tell somebody what to do. But only war, Warhammer 40K infantry Imperial Guard game might be a good look for you. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets a battle buddy. Everybody's a member of a squad. You can do infantry. You can do armor. You can do artillery. You can do commissars. Yeah. You can execute players. And that's one... One of the things that I did with my first group, I put an NPC commissar with the group. They figured out real quick that that loner shit wasn't going to do if you were given orders because the commissar will shoot you in the back of the head. That being said, it can also work against you. The weirdest game I ever played was when, again, the the group we went to Iraq with, we played an Aliens versus Predators game as the humans, as a military organization and unit, and I had a bunch of stuff written up for a full prison run, moving through where people were, where the predators were, where the aliens were, all this stuff written up, and my buddy who was playing the lieutenant in charge did exactly what he was supposed to do and skipped a whole bunch of crap that happened their first night on the insertion. He did exactly what he was told to do, and he sat right in the comms room and waited. Hmm. They secured the comms room, and they sat on it while everybody else around them died because they performed like a military unit. So... You got to be ready on both counts. You oh, so you were ready. anticipating them. Get- I was anticipating Mavericks being Mavericks. Right. I was anticipating group people, and I was anticipating a lieutenant with a hero complex. Right. That never happens. <laughs> and what I got was a lieutenant who did his job, and, well, crap. 
What do I do now? Now you don't need, you never met the NPC prisoners, the guys who ran it. You never met their heavies. Uh, you don't know what happened to your captain. You don't know any of this stuff because, well, you sat in the comms room and did your job. Right. So realism is good and bad. I mean, be ready for it, Jim. I mean, if it's, yeah, sometimes it works for you and sometimes it works against you. Well, thank you, Scott and Jim, for your emails. We, we really do appreciate it. All right, we'll move on to uh, to work call. We're going to talk about the longest games, longest games that you were involved with, and what was some of the keys as to why it was so successful? Because uh, you can't run a long game and say it wasn't successful. You go first. We oh. keep going yeah. first every time. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Eric, go All first. Right. The longest campaign that I ever ran was Shadowrun. I started Shadowrun in first edition. Uh, I had bought it uh, right before I left and went to the army. So I was, what, 17 years old? I started running, actually, I ran it a couple times for my civilian friends, but then I started really running it uh, in the barracks when I was in uh, when I was in Germany. And what I did was I, I never stopped the campaign. I would run adventures, book adventures. I would run, I would run things that I made up. And what I would do is every time the game itself would reiterate to another edition or I would change where I was, I would bring people into the game and the people who were no longer around or with me, I turned their characters into NPCs and then incorporated them into the continuity. So my, my Shadowrun game started in 91 and I just finished it last year in 2015. So 24 years of the same game. Damn. Yeah, it was. Now you know why I love to play Shadowrun with Eric because there was okay. history, there was continuity, there was, you know, all kinds of madness that had kind of gone on that you could could get into things, you know, NPCs, you could, you know, prime runner contacts, you could come up with that had been player characters, and there was also, you know, people that you just immediately hate, like a singer named Gary Gas, <laughs> and you know, he's you know he's like the Grateful Dead of the 2060s, all kinds of stuff like that. So that's why Eric ran a very rich game of Shadowrun. There was always backstory, always things to kind of pull yourself into. Right. And there was also, you would also deal with, let's say I would, let's say I started a game with a group of people and there was always consequences of previous groups and things. I was always pulling things from what previous groups had done and having the current group dealing with those consequences. So something happened 10 years ago and now, uh, a good example, one of the player characters was going into uh, performing a job and the gate guard was going for his weapon. Now, I tease him all the time saying he wasn't going for his weapon. He was reaching for a picture of his kids, but uh, <laughs> but uh, he guns him down. He said he, he even told him, don't. Don't move. Don't do it. Don't do it. And the guy reached for his gun, and he blew him away. This was my first shadow run, by the way, we're talking about here. Uh, uh, so we're not talking about the, like, ten characters in Five Nights? No, no, no. Okay. This this was Hazard. This was, yeah. oh, this was, Hazard. It was like okay. Hazard's first run. Right. So skip ahead ten years, of, you know, whatever, in real time. Mm-hmm. And we're playing a game, and I tie the, the player characters looking are looking into the death of uh, the, these people – and one of these people is, as the the Decker t- comes to find out, is the daughter of that security guard. And that it, she finds out that the player character that shot the guard was so guilt-ridden 
that he actually became a benefactor for the daughter, mm-hmm. the, the daughter that was left behind and got her through college and then actually started funding her becoming a professional shadow runner. And so she became a drone rigger. His his name was Skeeter. Yeah, and, and the and, character was Ratchet. Yeah, the character yeah, the player character was Ratchet, and then the 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 daughter went by the street name of Mosquito. And she was a drone rigger. And so all of these things kind of tied together. Uh, now, the funny thing was, and I would do this all the time, is the player was was removed from any of that story. So as she's starting to piece these things together, she's telling the group of even it's not even the group of people who are playing the game, talking to other friends and the player of that original character was sitting there going, you son of a bitch, you're using all <laughs> of the stuff that I did. So... Yeah, that that was the longest game that that I ran, and it it it, it made me cry when you closed continuity on that. By the well, way, well, it was it it had gotten to the point where it just it was too much, and I I decided that I wanted to start doing something new. And one of the good things about that, and then talking about longest games, you know, how do you make a game like that work? You know, how do you run a game for twenty four years? Well, the the best thing that I can say is you take a break. You don't play it constantly because you're going to burn out. You step away from it. You play something else, and then you go, let's go back to it. Same characters. Or if somebody else wants to make a different character, make a different character. But sit down and play that game again, even if it's a new edition, and play those characters again. Because players love love their characters, and especially if they've had any kind of history with them. And then you bring them back and say, let's do this again. Or... If the person can't be there, let's say uh, with Greg, it's like, okay, I know you can't be there for this game, Greg, but what's your character, what's your character been doing and what's been going on with, with this? And I can apply that into what's going on too. Shadowrun's really good for that. Uh, another good game for that would be any of your White Wolf games, mm-hmm. uh, especially like Vampire and stuff like that, where players could be pulling strings outside of, of what's going on. I know I had prepped something else originally because the longest game I've actually run and sat down and run was the Halloween scenario that we referenced earlier at Fort Leonard Wood. Okay. And it was it was Resident Evil, basically. It was the BSAA. It was fighting uh, bioweapons, and it was a whole bunch of intrigue and double-crossing and triple-crossing and villains keep popping. It was Resident Evil, the book game. Mm-hmm. But listening to you, I realized <clears throat> the longest game I've been a part of, I've run parts of it, not run parts of it, was a story mm-hmm. in Heroes. In Heroes, my buddy Dylan got me into Heroes, and I got Greg into Heroes, and then all three of us played Heroes. And But the stories that I was started on in a, in the, the Heroes campaign were started by the guy that Dylan learned Heroes from, mm-hmm. named Mo. And he created the background and history that we ran every time we run Heroes. We run it in that setting. Eric's it played is, a character in that setting. Oh, you played in the Red Rain setting? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is that Butcher or, Boy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh, you were Butcher Boy? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it, the Red Rain scenario that we run was the the Hero War, the Corporate War, the Shadow War, the up to and including a really futuristic version that was more fantasy hero than anything else because of all the stuff that had been progressively building on. They didn't get that far. They were The rain fell. They got powers. We ran another couple, and some people had to go, move on, and some people lost interest, yeah. so we jumped games. Yeah, and it, it happens there, but it is stories run by different people to make the entire story. Right. And it's one of the ones it's I like keep a quilting. Going. It's one of the ones I keep going back to because I know the story so well and I enjoy it. 
but it is rather dark. Sure. And it is one of those that, as we've started running Heroes Villains Run, where we are bad guys, I have had to completely step away from the Red Rain scenario because it it just got too much. Mm-hmm. I knew too much about it. I knew where things were going. Yes, we were fighting a corporation at one time. Yes, we were vigilantes here. Yes, the story of these heroes here. Yes, there were these weirdos named the weirdo vigilantes that got powers like tunneling and claws. And I also knew where it was going. And it, it seemed to me, like you were talking about with the, the story, it's just – it got to be too much. Mm-hmm. I love the story. I love the idea. But sometimes I just wanted to play that golden age hero that just punched everybody. Sure. Instead of had to worry about, well, I need to kill this guy because he works for the government, and which means most likely they got drones over there. And it, it's – I enjoyed playing it. I've come and gone into, this, into the overarching story. But sometimes I guess it's good to get out. Yeah, sure, sure. It, take that, it, take that break, or do yeah. do something else. Even the the story of Mike and uh, Frank and Mike, which was our Halloween scenario, and a Halloween scenario is a horror story that culminates on Halloween. And we played like in the previous episode we were talking about on again. It was one night was Mike and Frank's adventures. Mm-hmm. The next night was Dark Heresy. And we did that for two months, almost. Two, two and a half. Yeah. And then we carried them on when we got back because you then PCS'd to where I was. Mm-hmm. So then we continued those stories at my kitchen table and, you know, incorporated some guys from my unit into into one of the games for a little while. It It is the longest game I've consistently ran by myself because hmm. I don't have a lot of experience with longer games. Like our Greg's wife running 18 levels or something, I never had more than six levels in any D&D. Well, I had the longest I ever did in like D&D was nine levels. Hmm. That's it. I, the longest, the hardest I had was running Mike and Frank. Mike and Frank were not in the Red Rain storyline because they were in a Resident Evil story. So oh. we had the Raccoon City as the background and we had several different Resident Evils to work off of. I put those elements into it because of how much I love the Resident Evil story. Mm-hmm. And we can go back to it at any point in time because it's a very good horror genre. That is the longest one I've read because in Heroes, it was I want to say 125 points where every time you ran, you got between three and five points, depending upon whether it went well or went bad. If it went bad, you got more experience points because you had to learn more. If it went really well, you got three. And it went for almost 125, 135 points. Hmm. We finished at 265 experience. Dear God. (laughs) So we, yeah, so 140 points worth of experience. The thing about a Halloween scenario is people rarely survive. Uh, So... When I look at our friend Dylan and I, I, I get to look at Kyle and say, I have a Halloween scenario survivor and I still have that character. Dylan gets so mad at me sometimes, it seems like, because someone survived a horror, uh, someone survived a Halloween scenario. Oh, trust me. It was the last game was me fighting National Guardsmen to get away from a nuclear weapon after killing a viral vampire and dodging a horde of undead to do so. <laughs> mm-hmm. So trust me, it's not like it was a cakewalk. Yeah. It's not like, you know, I was on a milk run. I almost died at least twice, mm. but being a I military did. guy, I had a fallback or two and some decent way to break contact and my character could regenerate. My character had absorbed some nastiness and get, gotten a little bit of power and I made sure to put some points so I could 
regenerate some damage. Not necessarily fast, but you know, I mean, I I I had some bets. I played it smart, and I I, I have a Halloween scenario survivor, <laughs> and it bugs some people to no end. I need a T-shirt for that. One of the things about the Halloween scenario that makes it a fun thing to play because the worst one was the fantasy hero version. Oh God! And it lasted a night. Yep. One, and the entire party died because. We made a bad decision. And the thing about a Halloween scenario is it starts with everything mapped out and planned out. Most of my runs tend to be fluid. I tend to move from one. I have an overarching story I'm working towards, but you do different things, and then you have to tailor the next night based off what you did. If you went completely stupid crazy, well, stupid crazy is now part of the story, and you have to work around it. But a Halloween scenario starts with this is the way things are, this is where they are, this is the city, this is where the bad guys are, this is the timeline from where super bad guy B is moving from here to here. Mm -hmm. These are the things you have to worry about actually running in a town. It's kind of like a video game in that everything is already set up and ready to go. It doesn't matter if you've suddenly decided, hey, I've got a chopper. Well, guess what? That's The National Guard is there in case you find a chopper. There's a lot of prep behind all of that. A lot of prep for the Halloween scenario. And as fun as it is to play, like I said, we decided to do a Halloween scenario in Germany, and we died the first night. (laughs) The entire 12-man party died the first night because we missed a detail. Wow. One detail, and we found ourselves, okay, so we arrive at a town. He goes, well, it's nighttime, and everybody went, oh, shit, run for the nearest door. And we tried to, and we had to force our way in the first building we saw Mm. because we knew we were going to die. We didn't even make it there. Wow. Half of us made it inside. Half of us were slaughtered by vampires. The other half, well, and then the first half that made it inside didn't make it back out. Wow. Because we made a bad decision and every decision has a consequence. Hmm. Halloween scenarios can be fun because when people die, they're done. It's not, well, I'm gonna bring this player back in. Right. No, right you're right. out. Yeah. Your you're, you're gone. Your part of the story is over. Grab a Coke and sit back, my friend, cause you are done for the evening. Hmm. Here's the halo control. Well, that, nice that's a, there, there's a merit to that. There's a, you know, the, there's a sense of achievement when you are a survivor of that because it, it's actually an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. The, one of the stories Dylan has is, running a Halloween scenario and having to run because the party separated, having to run this part of the party over here and uh, another person running this part of the party over there and having to communicate, the GMs having to communicate back and forth. This may be going on at the same time. So it's a two-GM game? It was because the party separated and went on separate courses because the best thing we should do is split up in a a horror movie (laughs) until they came back together. Wow. That was one of the the nastiest things was coming back together because one group, I think, was mostly dead by that point in time and had to reabsorb back in the main group. Hmm. And you had to deal with the ramification. Well, guess what? Now you have a minor vampire that was formerly Batman. Hmm. If that is your particular genre you're You've going got to for. be prepared to be very fluid in a Halloween mm-hmm. scenario. So that means you might, if, if the party wants to split, you either have to have a dead player character that has enough chops to run them and carry on some of your idea, mm-hmm. or you're going to be, okay, you guys at that table, and I'm going to do 30 minutes at each table here mm. so that we can keep going and keep the game moving forward until you guys want to come back together. Wow. And if you decide to sit for an hour, well, you decide to sit for an hour and you just miss them because they decided not to sit for an hour. Hmm. And so it becomes harder to communicate. You don't allow them to talk between. Timeline tracking becomes important. Sure. For mine, longest game I've ever run is kind of a tie. I've run Pathfinder Rise of the Rune Lords. Probably the longest is a Vampire of the Dark Ages game I ran. When I was in college, uh, I ran the Transylvania Chronicles and that 
adventure is actually three books that goes from 600 to 1480-ish. Mm. So, you know, you're talking centuries of gaming. Part of that was studying up a lot on medieval Transylvania, more than just what's in the books, doing my background, keeping notes, telling them, all right, well, you guys are going to have 100 years of downtime, so I want between this session and next session do some homework. Tell me what you're going to do in that 100 years. Right. Because when we come back, we're starting right up right afterwards. There's fallout or repercussions from something you're going to do. It's coming, but it's not coming right now. So it, it involves a lot of note tracking like and timeline tracking like a Halloween scenario. It requires, you know, if you're going to run a book adventure, incorporate your history, incorporate some other stuff. It It's research. It can be a lot of work to run a very long-term campaign, but I have guys who still will talk about that Vampire of the Dark Ages campaign. Right. Absolutely. You know, uh, our friend Scott, it's probably the only game of vampire he ever played, but we played for months. And it was more than one night a week because... At the time, I was going to community college and working in a comic book store, so we had time. That's called living the life, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was shortly after that, I, I had the bonehead idea to move out of my mother's house and actually be an adult. And, uh, bills, that, bills, bills. Yeah, that was kind of stupid. But uh, long-term campaigns are great. But as you said, take breaks. As I recall, when we were doing your long-term Shadowrun campaign, we'd play Shadowrun three to six months and then kick over to D&D for three to six months. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those were D&D characters we ran just about as long but, we but that also the game didn't necessarily stop that's something that that i took from that i learned from that was just because the game you're playing if you want to run a long-term game you find somebody who still wants to be interested in that and you can still push those buttons and pull those strings i mean there was a point where greg and i this was back in the old was at uh chat uh, oh, yeah, msn messenger yeah msn yeah. messenger we'd finish a game the, on monday nights i'd go back to my college apartment we'd kick on msn messenger and play shadowrun over msn messenger <laughs> <laughs> the thing was we weren't playing shadowrun at the time we were playing D D at the table yeah but then greg was doing we were doing messenger gaming and having to resolve combat before D D night started on on monday be like all right well we can't you can't do that because you know so and so is going to react this way so you're going to have to resolve some combat do you think that things like skype have really helped in that since we do also the skype with toju i would think yes. Toju is a friend of ours who runs an L5R game and uh, he's got long-term aspirations for this game. Um, he doesn't do a lot of the side gaming stuff though. You know, the, the hey, Kyle, what does your character do about this situation? Mm -hmm. Removed from the rest of the group, just kind of getting getting your juices flowing, thinking about what your character is going to do and, and things like that. Sometimes you kind of got to do that. Vampire's a good game to do that with. Oh, yeah. Because so, anything set in the modern time, because then you could do it in character. Well, Cyberpunk as well. One of the most recent, the first game we played a Cyberpunk, we had to spend a year of game time down because one guy got shot in the head and had to be completely recreated <laughs> his brain. And the other one had to sell off a portion of one of, of one of his bodily stats to a demon to help the guy that was shot wow. in the brain. So right. I spent a year of downtime going, what the hell is my character going to do? So I joined like six different shadow running groups as a low-level runner when I wasn't a low-level runner just to flesh out new skills my character wanted to learn. Hmm. And that's what – and so didn't make any money because, well, I kept spending it on things and skills and, well, I need to take lessons to learn how to pilot a hovercraft because – in case that happens again. So – 
Hmm. You know, for me, it was good in that aspect, but still don't know what's going to happen when we start that game back up. <laughs> and for most people who are familiar with Cyberpunk, if you're not, there's very little as- uh, fantasy aspect to Cyberpunk, but we've got a guy who has run it and almost only runs Cyberpunk and has incorporated into his Cyberpunk world vampires and werewolves from White Wolf, and he has converted every monster from five monster manuals of D&D into cyberpunk. And if you can think of it, he's found a way to do it, but those things only interact with you if you either stumble upon them or you look for them. So you can play a straight vanilla game of cyberpunk, but in our third game session, we stumble upon a demon that I couldn't see because I've got two cyber eyes. Technology doesn't work to doesn't see work. them. Doesn't see them. Mm-hmm. You know. So we had to get creative so we broke a sprinkler. I may not be able to see the demon, but I can see the water hitting And I can right. see the void in the water. Mm-hmm. So right. it's a fun game. Um, and he's a good buddy of ours, uh, Adkins. He's uh, still active duty. That's the other thing. That's, that's what I love about the military is if you want to run, run a long-term game, you may not see the guy for three years. You may not see him for six months. You might be reduced to playing on Skype because he wound up in California and you're in Illinois. But you've got the contact. He's your buddy. You can find him again. And you're going to pick up right where you left off. You're going to play. I still have the first characters I played in the military. Terendian Mindhammer, the psionic dwarf, (laughs) and Wraith, the vigilante. And I still have those characters and can pick them right back up because... Well, that's the way we do it. They never died, thank God. And that's the thing. You know, coming back to it, you some people don't like the idea of playing the same characters over and over again. But personally, I think it's a good thing to kind of go back and, and play these characters. If, let's say, your game master doesn't want to run those characters again, maybe somebody else does. Somebody else takes the game master reins and runs it for a while and doesn't have a problem with you running that character or playing that character again. And another thing that seems to help, I know it seems to help, me is that for some of these games we switch because we've all right now we're running a villains run in uh heroes and we've all are experienced gms so i have a character despite the fact i'm running the main story arc because it was my idea but greg runs his wife runs our buddy dylan runs and i get to play Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that really helps me not burn out is that I have a character who's not just there in case they need his skills. Does that character act as an NPC? Uh, when when I'm running, he is an NPC that has skills and they can use the skills. He's there. They can assign him a task, but I won't necessarily offer. They, so, they say, you're a cat burglar. Do you know how to get in? There you go. There's my role. He knows how to get in. So I can do it that way. And when they are run, oh, I get to be the weirdly flamboyant, shape-shifting cat burglar and get to let my personality out as theirs fade to the background. And I'm playing a character like Multiple Man, but I'm designing him to be the ultimate henchman. So when I run, they're henchmen. Mm -hmm. You tell them what to do. They're the getaway driver. They're the gunman that holds the hostage, whatever. They're henchmen. You got to tell them what to do. Hmm. That's an interesting concept because going into it, you go in, you would make your character thinking, how would I, not only how would I play this character, but how would the group be able to utilize this character when I'm running the game? Mm -hmm. So you make a useful character. Nothing really kind of bugs me more than somebody who makes a character that is 85% useless, but it's what they wanted. It's when I just want to look at them, maybe it's a military mindset I've developed, but especially if they make things that they make are themselves. contrary to the do, to the group and hurt the group 
because it's what their character would do. Listen, pal, you just took into effect the feelings of your imaginary friend over the group of people sitting at a table that want to spend time with you. So I'm going to let you think about that for a minute, and we'll come back. I have honestly looked at a character. He was playing this. He's playing an asshole, and he did something that was bad for the group, and... I said, are you really going to do that? He goes, and I, I use my imaginary friend speech, like I just said. And he goes, yeah, that's what I'm doing. And then I looked at his older brother and my wife, and his older brother hit him in the chest with a great axe, and my wife backstabbed him with a short sword. He said, I don't get an initiative check? Surprise actions, dude. Sorry. Roll damage. And they were Sometimes like, you can't save them from themselves. They're second right. or third level characters, and he was toast. Any final thoughts? Thank you to everybody who's listening. Hey, refer a friend if you can. We just want to get our message out, and we want to be there for our gamer friends, our friends who are veterans, our friends who are active duty. If there's anything you want to hear, drop us a line. Let us know. We want to expand what we're doing, and we want to hear what you think. Send, Drop us a line and give us some topics you want to hear about. If you want us to play something online on air, if you want us to do an actual play. Or, yeah, you got, you got rules, questions about Hero. I mean, you guys are really experienced with Hero, I think. And, uh, hell, I've got 100,000 questions about that freaking game. Nothing quite like arguing with people on Facebook about heroes. <laughs> Which you've been doing all day. I know. <laughs> to build off of what you're saying, Greg, if there's anything that we can do or, or a cause or something that you would like for us to promote, please let us know. We'd be glad to give it a look and, and give them a shout out on, on Mike. Or, you know, you think that the community, the veteran community needs to know about this, then let us know. If you have games that you really enjoy that we don't talk about, let us know. We'll look at them. I don't have a lot of experience with many different games. I've done about a dozen. But in the mail call, I don't think I've really played most of the games that they keep bringing up. I've not done a lot of historical stuff. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and these are games that I might want to look into. So if you have one, if you have one that might be known, just let us know. Some of us might have experience with it. Some of our friends might that we could bring in to talk about. Absolutely games. right. Absolutely right. Yeah, you can always find us at trenchmonkeys.com. You can always send us an email. Like I said, uh, mail call at trenchmonkeys.com. That's where you can send me the mail call or you can go to the site and there's uh, a link to mail call up there if you want to send us a question or a comment. Thank you to Scott and Jim for your emails. Thank you everybody for listening. Thanks guys. Trench Monkeys. Dismissed. <laughs>